This episode of The Outside Interview is brought to you by Health IQ. Everyone knows that life insurance companies raise your rates for things like smoking and obesity. So why don't they lower your rates for being healthy? That's what Health IQ does. They advocate for people who make healthy choices. They start by gathering information on your lifestyle, and then they use that data to negotiate a rate with the insurance company. The healthier you live, the more you save. Let's say you hit the gym a few times a week to lift weights. To Health IQ, this says that compared to the bench pressless population, you have a 19% reduction in cancer mortality, 23% lower cholesterol, and a 40% decrease in visceral fat. You also sleep better, or are less depressed, and have a better memory. So finish this set, and then go to healthiq.com outside to see if you qualify. Just make sure you wipe down the bench. That's healthiq.com outside. This episode is also brought to you by Stay Roasted. Stay Roasted is a subscription service for your coffee, delivering specialty-grade coffee beans hand-selected to your tastes straight to your door. It's simple. Set some basic preferences, and Stay Roasted helps you create a roaster lineup from dozens of America's celebrated coffee roasters. They take care of the rest. When it's refill time, your next roaster is queued and ready to roast. Stay Roasted plans start at only 60 cents per brewed cup, and there's no commitments. Try it for yourself. Visit stayroasted.com slash outside to get your first bag of coffee for free. You only pay shipping. That's stayroasted.com slash outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your guys' mics. With Chris Katz. As a writer, Mark Sundin does a couple of things that are really hard to do. He writes about people trying to find happiness by changing their lifestyles, which are personal stories that unfold over months and years and decades. You can't just parachute in. But he's a writer with deadlines, so he parachutes in. A few months ago, he went to Standing Rock and wrote a piece cutting to the heart of what's going on there faster than anything else I've read. And he did it before most of the rest of the media had even picked up that this was going to be a big story. He just put a mattress in the back of his uh, station wagon and went up there with a few gallons of water and just planned to stay and report it of his own volition without an assignment. Um, And what he ended up turning in was just an excellent story and perspective on what was going on there. His writing is also irreverent without being disrespectful and funny in these really small ways that sneak up on you. And he, he, he uses phrases like, I was just looking at the, the Standing Rock piece, and he calls, like, he calls the police response a touch of epic derp, <laughs> which says like everything you need to know about the whole yeah. kind of interaction in, in just this one little phrase. If you can't tell, I have a bit of a writerly crush on Mark Sundin. And, and what, is it, what is it like to work with Mark? I mean, he seems sort of like this cross between like Edward Abbey and like John Jeremiah Sullivan, like this <laughs> kind of really thoughtful crank. Uh, yeah, I think, I think he would, he would accept that. Uh, <laughs> very thoughtful crank is, is about right. He's also just incredibly honest, um, which gives him really sort of keen insight in, into the people that he covers because he's not, he's not judgmental about these people and he really reflects a lot on his own life and his own life choices. And I think he really identifies with people who 
um, you know, are living on the margins, um, you know, not based on necessarily bad luck, but by choice, uh, living their ideals out in, in, in the real world. You can sort of see his fascination develop and evolve if you follow his work through the last few years. His last book, called The Man Who Quit Money, was about a man who stopped using money. In the January issue of Outside, he has this really excellent piece about tiny homes and the people who try to simplify their lives by downsizing. And then this month, he's releasing a book called The Unsettlers, which follows three families who commit themselves to homesteading in search of an ethical and meaningful life. You get the sense that Sundin is either very purposefully sticking close to these kinds of people for very high-minded reasons, or that he's actually sort of trying to opt out himself, but just not very good at it. He's, he's been trying to escape his privileges, he writes in the book. And so he's lived, I wouldn't say a fully alternative lifestyle, but he's, you know, he's has always just tried to pursue a life that uh, is more than, than what we consider the, the mainstream ideal. In any case, he's a fascinating guy and a writer you should definitely be reading. Outside editor Chris Kyes talked to Mark just as he was gearing up for his book tour. Um, well, I loved, I, I was looking on Amazon yesterday and saw some of the blurbs for the book, and I just thought Bob Shikochis put it perfectly. I've come to think of Mark Sundin as our poet laureate of alternative lifestyles. And, um, you know, your first book was about the man who quit money, which is a pretty apt title for that one. And this book is about couples who have, you know, made a conscious choice to, to live out of the American mainstream. And I'm just wondering what, what draws you to this kind of subject matter? Well, I've always been a kind of borderline dropout myself just from my days of being a, a climbing bum and a river guide and an outward bound instructor and, you know, living outside and uh, not having a regular job, not having a year round full time job and, you know, surviving off of $8,000 a year, that kind of thing. And I think since I've gotten older and become a little more uh, sedentary or (laughs) part of the mainstream, (laughs) owning a house, having some semblance of a job, maybe I've just started to yearn more to see how other people have figured this out in a way that they can do it for their whole life. In addition to that, so that was kind of what set me out. And also, um, you know, in the time of writing this book, I got married and my wife and I are thinking about having kids. So... Uh, it became not an abstraction for me, but wondering, you know, can we raise a family and not be complete sellouts? And I think that's one of the things I love about this book is that there are so many people in our generation who do abandon, the, and I think every generation who, you know, in our system, um, who eventually abandon the, these ideals of their youth. And then there's this automatic kind of yearning that just lingers as you get older um, for this simpler kind of life. And, and what I think your, your book really is, is this sort of meditation on the dream versus reality, because it's really a lot of hard work is what it, what it is at the central part of, of, of dropping out and living this kind of um, alternative lifestyle. It's a lot of work. Yeah, they're definitely not going river rafting every day. That's for sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. And was that something that surprised you when you started to dig into this? I would say that the people who com- who commit for the short term 
are quickly shocked and repulsed by how difficult it is, uh, both in terms of physical labor and voluntary poverty. And, you know, those those are pretty serious realities of being a homesteader or and, and trying not to have a job that, that is part of the global economy. Um, so, yeah, within that subcategory of people who, who try to do it, I think that's what r- repels them. I think people who have never uh, actually tried it, I don't, there's probably bigger fears about, um, you know, security and um, that social pressure of of wanting to appear successful. I mean, you know, it's 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 pretty mm-hmm. hard to to take your college degree and uh, whatever sort of privilege and opportunity you've been granted, and say I'm going to renounce that and I'm going to you know basically grow vegetables and be poor. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the, the first couple, Ethan Hughes and Sarah Wilcox. Can you tell us how you first met them? Well, ironically, since they don't use computers, I found them uh, via Facebook. I, I, I literally just put up a, a Facebook note that says, does anyone know anyone who lives off the grid with kids? That was your opening salvo. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, yeah. And uh, I was introduced to a neighbor of theirs uh, who appears in the book. It's their closest friends who live out there in Missouri um, in the next plot of land over and they introduced me to Ethan and Sarah and uh, of course you know I had to get on the landline to talk to them because they're not online at all yeah so describe the the possibility alliance where they live this is a farm in La Plata Missouri um, and they bought they bought an Amish farm and I know it's a sort of a long and winding road how they eventually got there but uh, as best you can kind of describe how, how they wound up in this place they um, stopped using cars. They were still living in the U.S. They became very interested in, in uh, changing the world through nonviolent direct action and th- also in sort of boycotting all petroleum products, including electricity. They spent a couple of years living in a Gandhian community in France, and they basically decided to start something similar in the U.S., and that's how they ended up buying this 80-acre farm, sight unseen, and arriving by train and bicycle, they um, rode into their farm, sight unseen, in the middle of the night. She was five months pregnant. And they basically set up a community that has, you know, depending on the time of year, between five and 15 people living there. They get 1,500 visitors per year. And they have no cars. They have no electricity. They have no. They don't even have solar electricity. And they basically have an all... A local seasonal diet, and in addition to all of that, which involves you know growing their own food and using cows and horses and, and goats, um, they're also still doing direct action, which is to say, Ethan goes off to protests on his bicycle and gets arrested and that kind of stuff. And just what kind of time frame did you spend uh, living at living at this farm? I've made. Two visits there. Each one lasted about 10 days. Uh, The first one, I was part of a big group of about 20 of us. It was called Experience Week. And a bunch of people who were curious, had heard about it, uh, were invited to spend a week sort of learning, you know, chopping down dead trees and chopping firewood and milking the cows and the goats and um, farming and 
doing service projects. And after that, I decided to include them in my book. And then I came back for another 10-day stay where it was just no one else was visiting. And I just had the whole time to interview Ethan and Sarah and the other residents. And, and what was it like for you for that for those 10-day spans? I guess one of the first, the strongest reactions or uh, bits of revelation I had was just how spoiled I am. Because I think of myself as <laughs> as someone who lives a pretty simple life. Um, but the you know I've lived most of my life in southern Utah and western Montana, which are these gorgeous sort of wild national park landscapes. And in order to live as simply as Ethan and Sarah do, you have to go somewhere where real estate is really cheap. And so, mm-hmm. much to my surprise, there's not a lot of people who can live like this in the West, uh, just because the land's too expensive. And so. Just to realize that, like, you know, if if you're going to commit to living outside the mainstream economy, you're not going to be able to live in Moab, Utah. You're going to be probably in the in the Midwest or in the South in a place where you can grow food and where there's good rainfall. But there's not going to be, you know, mountain biking outside your door. Um, and that was hard for me. I realized how that I've become addicted to living in these beautiful uh, mm-hmm. public lands type of landscapes. And when you would do these, did these two stints there, when you would come back home, would you be inspired by the way they'd been living? Would you feel like um, it was it was affecting the way that you felt about your life at home when you would leave? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just uh, not spending any time online. That was a huge revelation of, uh, you know, how much unnecessary anxiety I, I put on myself by spending time basically messing around and and starting to feel jealous of other people by looking at the internet. Um, I was also, uh, yeah, there's a certain peace that comes from uh, not being involved in errands and commerce and traffic and and all those other things that make you feel like you're just wasting your day. And also I felt... uh, I felt really great to be surrounded by a community of people who believe the same things as me, who were really wanted to commit their lives to um, bringing meaning, um, to finding some kind of peace in their selves as well as in the world at large. I mean, you just don't find that every day uh, in your normal work where you can sit down and talk about your values and your beliefs with someone for an hour. And that's what that happens every day mm-hmm. at the Possibility Alliance. So that was pretty powerful and, and made me wish I had that in my life. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things about that and what, you know, the way they're living is considered in mainstream America so radical that anybody attracted to those kinds of ideas in a, in a sort of normal setting um, would be, you know, and, and wanted to share that that fantasy of dropping out and living this way would be sort of just looked at um, as a crazy person, uh, right? <laughs> by their friends, and I think I think I, I would imagine that you would go back home and and sort of full of inspiration about how these guys lived and wanted wanted to share that with your friends and um, and it being awfully difficult to do without getting sort of eye rolls. Oh yeah, I I, I suggested to some of our friends that we set up like. Um mutual marriage counseling sessions with other (laughs) married couples and that one hit like a lead balloon 
<laughs> but that's what they do out at, at the possibility lines because they don't have any money to afford to go to you know therapy they and so they they do all this conflict resolution internally and it you know works quite well um it's funny you should mention the word radical because ethan and sarah pushed back against me really hard every time i would use a word like radical or utopian and they would say we're just trying to live our lives in a way that makes us happy I mean, historically, the way they live is very conventional. It's They're living like the most sort of wholesome, um, mm-hmm. Midwestern, mm-hmm. pioneer-type people. And, you know, they see the rest of us as living insane radical lives in which we've sort of given up community and given up a connection to nature and given up the feeling of doing meaningful ethical work also that we can have a better sort of career, you know, also we can live in a more attractive neighborhood. So they think we're all radical and weird. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I do think that that's one of uh, another things I really appreciate about the book is that you do present all three of these couples um, and their ideals. You you take it very seriously that you don't you're not um, you're not providing much of an opinion on it. You're very clear-eyed about the amount of work and what it takes to be this way and the amount of um, sort of stubbornness that you have to have to live this way. But you don't read it, um, at least I didn't read it, as um, a judgment on these people. And in fact, a lot of what they're talking about sounds very sane as a result. Yeah, I, I actually, this this was a, a result, I'm glad you noticed that, because, uh, you know, I spent uh, several years deciding what this book was going to be about and what kind of people I wanted to profile, and then I went out and found them. I wanted it to be, I wanted these people to be able to articulate their position and their beliefs in a way that, that stood for itself, if you know what I mean. It, mm-hmm. So it wasn't going to mm-hmm. require to me... It wasn't going to require me to come in and say, well, what they actually mean is this. Yeah, and another, I think another thing, um, well, let's talk a little bit about the second couple in Detroit. Um, Greg Willer and, um, I'm sorry, what was Olivia, Hu- Olivia Hubert. Oh, yeah, Olivia Hubert. Well, and Olivia is kind of one of those characters that sounds like they come out of fiction i mean it just uh, an african-american grows up in a really tough part of detroit um and at an early age decides she wants to be a horticulturist and somehow succeeds at that uh d- describe her rise a little bit well uh let's see like yeah like you say she grew up in detroit her uh dad disappeared he was part of the kind of got caught up in that crack epidemic of the 80s so she was raised by a single mom and uh, got a scholarship to college and the way she did that was she took this uh, internship at the Belle Isle Conservatory and she learned all about plants and um, had this almost mystical world that she would step into that was so beautiful and so sheltered from the rest of Detroit. And she just fell in love with it. Uh, after college, she ended up working in London at the uh, Royal Horticultural Society Uh but eventually she came home, she got homesick, and she also kind of felt like the, the problems in the world, um, she didn't want to run away from them. And they were nowhere more pronounced than her hometown of Detroit. And so she said, what can I do here? She ended up getting a job at that same place that she'd interned. And um, she kind of, wa- it was a, a city uh, owned by the city of Detroit. And as she worked there, the city went bankrupt. 
and the the job sort of uh, evaporated, and she ended up becoming a farmer as a result of that. Yeah, and she meets her husband Greg Willer, who has uh, Brother Nature Produce, which is basically an urban farm. Um, one of my favorite moments in the book is he uh, he says, "How many people does it take to to run an urban farm?" And the answer is you know, twenty five filmmakers and journalists, which really speaks to the fact that you know movements like this have become really popular uh, in media and culture and. How did they treat, did they treat you skeptically as another journalist who wanted to write about this phenomenon? Uh, Olivia treated me skeptically at first because I wandered into their farm and literally forgot the name of the farm and forgot (laughs) her name. I'd looked them up online and I showed up and she was out in the greenhouse and I said, so all I could remember was was that the other owner, her husband, was named Greg, so... I'm like, hi, is this Greg's farm? Which I knew was totally offensive because it was her farm as well, but I couldn't remember her name. And So that was a good opening line then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but weirdly enough, I started talking about the book I was writing, and I mentioned uh, this fairly obscure woman named Ina Mae Gaskin who has written these books about spiritual midwifery. And Olivia uh, had read the book and was planning to have a natural home birth, and she immediately thought that I was legit. And so after that, mm-hmm. things were great. Uh, and with Greg, Greg was even probably a little more skeptical. And basically the way he treated me was that uh, as long as I was working, uh, then he would answer my questions. So, And by working, I mean weeding, um, gardening, you know, laying irrigation hose. So I had to follow him around and, and kind of work my ass off in the, in the summer sun in order for him to answer my questions. <laughs> <laughs> and... Describe their describe their farm, at least um, as it was w- when you were reporting it, because I know that they've since moved out of the city. Yeah, well, they actually haven't moved. They, they bought more farmland outside the city, but they still live on their, their farm in Corktown, which is one of the old neighborhoods near downtown Detroit. And it's a city block that has about mm, six or eight houses. The rest have all been torn down. And... So there's about 14 vacant lots, which they have now taken over to farm on. Uh, you know, they just have made it their home and they really love it. And Greg has managed to, uh, no, all, all the old neighbor, all the old folks in the neighborhood call him Gardener Greg, Gardener Greg. And they love having a farm there because otherwise they would have, you know, uh, people shooting up and, and doing drugs in those vacant lots. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that struck me about them and the, the sort of the sh- that they share with the other characters in the book is this sort of inner resolve and worldview that that a lot of us might just almost consider strident. You know, there's a point in the book where you talk about you know Whole Foods, which has famously moved into Detroit um, into a low-income neighborhood, and they come to him with a deal to to buy his lettuces, and he refused to to work with them, um, feeling that they, they represented the problems with American food industry, not, not a solution. Um, and this, this, he maybe had, you know, perfectly good grounds to, to have done that. But I'm wondering, as, as you reported this, did you find yourself, you know, sort of blanching at how uncompro- uncompromising um, some of your characters were? Oh, no, I was totally inspired by them. And uh, I thought it was great. And I mean, you know, this I could say something about them that's true for all three families. 
is that the way that they've been doing this for their entire life is that it wasn't a sudden um, overnight thing like, a, you know, they're sitting in corporate America one day and then farming in Detroit the next. But, you know, Greg had been this sort of committed anarchist activist for 10 years and then a committed public school teacher for another 15 years before he even started living like this. So for him, yeah, Whole Foods is out of the question. It goes against everything he believes in. And, uh, you know, that's a big reason why I chose these families is because they were so committed and had been doing it their entire life. And I think in sort of the reality TV show model, it's more like the people who... uh, have a normal suburban life and overnight think they're going to go homestead. And in addition to the work being too hard for them, I just don't think they have the, the sort of uh, fiber and uh, deep, deep Mm. beliefs, you know, because if, if, yeah, like if you're going to live like this, you have to believe that it's right because you're getting so much feedback telling you you're wrong. And the whole foods is a perfect example like everyone thinks that Greg is nuts for not selling his lettuce to an organic supermarket that's, you know, a force for good. But that's not what he believes. He thinks it's just another corporation sucking the money out of Detroit. I also found that through these characters, there's, and you, you tell me if you, if you think that this characterization is wrong, but there's a little bit of a built-in, I don't want to say hopelessness, but a, a sort of giving up on, uh, change through the normal systems, through government, through policy, through pro- protest, and that so they've sort of resigned themselves to just living their own lives to their ideals, but feel that there isn't a possibility necessarily for a larger cultural change. Is that fair? Uh, yes and no. I would say that they do not think that that change is possible through government or through nonprofits, but they do feel that change is possible through people like themselves committing, changing their life and building alternative systems. There's a certain amount of, of need to be strident in your beliefs to live this way. And sometimes, um, at least as a reader, I, sometimes I was sort of like, oh, my gosh, are you serious? Um, I, was, I, was re- I was relieved to, to hear that Sarah, for ex- example, of Ethan and Sarah of the Possibility Alliance, at least took a car to the hospital um, when, uh, when, 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 when she had to give birth and then there were complications. Um, but that's about as, uh, as big a compromise as they're willing to make. And I, w- I wondered if, if you were ever sort of turned off by some of their stridency. Well, actually, I, I, I loved it when they were that strident. I just thought they were um, so forceful and I was envious and I wish that I didn't make compromises the way that I do. Uh, like, for example, with Whole Foods, um, you know, everyone uh, in the sort of liberal uh, health food community, you know, more, I shouldn't say everyone, but most people think Whole Foods is, is a pretty good thing. Like they bring healthy food to Americans. But Greg just being sort of steeled in that life of anarchism, uh, just saw them as another corporation sucking money out of Detroit and he refused to deal with them. And so I, I totally admired that. Um. And I, as, so, so your last couple, Lucy Brieger and Steve Elliott, who have a farm, um, they have an organic farm outside of Missoula, and these two have stuck it out for several decades. Um, was there something that you found 
different about them having succeeded this long, given that your your first two couples are really sort of just starting out in terms of their um, really committing to these beliefs? Really what, what drew me to them is that they've been doing it for so long and that they're sort of over the hump in terms of raising their kids. Their kids are now in college or one's a senior in high school. Uh, but again, they had this commitment uh, that was so deep that nothing was going to turn them back. And they really believed that that they were changing the world by growing food and selling it locally, uh, growing it without uh, pesticides and reducing the amount of miles it was being shipped. Um, and, you know, I should add that, that they loved this. It's not like they're wearing a hair shirt and just suffering in order to save the world. Um, they like farming and they like selling food at the farmer's market and being part of that movement and teaching people about how important food is. And they don't want to have office jobs. They don't want to go sit in an office. Uh, so they really love what they're doing, and they've managed to make it last for now 30 years. As you sort of discover in the book, like in order to live this way, you have to commit full bore and love this kind of lifestyle. And and your wife at one point in the book just says, "Mark, you're just not this kind of person." <laughs> and do you, th- do you think that do you think that's true for a lot of us? Yeah, I think that most people don't want to do f- manual labor, physical work, uh, for eight to ten hours a day. And you know, and I don't think that actually means that we're all a bunch of wusses. I mean, I think that to a certain extent, we've been trained. You know, anyone who was born in the past fifty years has been trained to do kind of white collar information jobs and work is meaningful and if you if you do something well then you find meaning in your work and just because of the way the economy and the world is changing there are fewer and fewer jobs that involve building physical things whether that means cooking or farming or you know manufacturing or carpentry those jobs are going away and they're being replaced by by the information economy. And so to to bring that back, it's like, yeah, yeah, we don't want to do work because we're not tough enough. But that's also a sign of the times that um, that we haven't been trained to do this work. And we certainly haven't been brought up to believe that this work is meaningful. Uh, You know, we like no one in our society really aspires to go to college and become a farmer. But maybe they ought to. (laughs) Um. Yeah, the, the book itself is really deeply personal as well, and you talk a lot about your own, um, you know, early on in adulthood of sort of trying to escape privilege and this this larger desire to live a, a simple life. And, you know, having taken a really hard look at these alternative lifestyles and maybe confronted the fact that that you're not one of these people, have you arrived at a place where, where you're, you're okay with that, that, that that you're just probably not going to live um, this simple of a life? Yeah, I, I don't think I'm ever going to live this 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 radically. And, and, you know, I mean, that's good because I don't love farming this, this much. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, I struggle every day with thinking that, like, my action is going to destroy the planet. I mean, and like, and just simple things like... Um, driving in cars and turning up the thermostat and using electricity, using the internet, I feel like, why do I need to do these things when I know the effect that it has cumulatively on, mm. on making this world a worse place? 
Well, Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, a kind of a splash of cold water, but uh, you know, I just uh, it's hard. It's hard to to go from hanging out with these people. Um, yeah. To to come back into normal civilization and you know. See, see a tanning salon for example not that I, I go to tanning salons but you think like how is this how do we even have these things it's so wasteful <laughs> you, you read about the the three couples and you get a sort of a sense of a built-in hopelessness about our society and and change and how to change and that um you know changing through our government systems and changing through protest isn't necessarily um, effective whatsoever. And so they're better off just living their ideals on their own. Is that fair? Absolutely. Uh, they, they don't think that, that the world is going to be changed through government or through academics or through nonprofits. But they do believe the world can be changed. They think it's going to be changed by individuals you know, changing their own behavior, changing their own consumption, changing their own belief system, and then, of course, acting in a different way, um, committing their life to uh, whether it's local food or urban farming or direct action, um, direct nonviolent action. That's how it's going to change. It's going to be changing people's hearts on a one by one level as opposed to a policy decision. Right. But so given that you did a deep dive into these lifestyles and that a lot of these folks that you profile, you know, don't believe in, in making change through the, the, the regular system yet. Yet we're also talking about the fact that this might not be realistic for a lot of us to, um, as, as a way for a lot of us to live. How do we change society if we agree that sort of this capitalist system is, is, has some sickness in it well to me this book was to uh i just wanted to, to sh demonstrate that it can be done and mm -hmm. that these people can do it in a way that that to them feels joyful it doesn't feel like a slog it doesn't feel like a miserable life they've chosen to to make the rest of us feel guilty because you know we like to play Angry Birds or, or whatever. Um, so I don't know what to what degree um, the masses could live like this. You know, I would say that, you know, a lot of very a lot of experts uh, say that we can't go on living the way we're living. Um, people will say, well, if everyone lived like that, you know, we wouldn't have X, Y, and Z. And that's true. You know, if, if, if everyone was a self-sufficient farmer, we wouldn't have airplanes and rocket ships. But you can flip that around and say, if everyone lived like an American, we would need f between four and seven planet Earths to support our way of life, which is to say that, like, we can't keep doing this. Um, and it's it's it, it feels like it's sustainable in the way that that paddling down a river approaching a waterfall that you can't see yet feels sustainable um so i don't have the answer in terms of like how many people need to be farming and and how many you know 
kilowatts of electricity each person should be allowed to use. I just know that what the system we have is is bound for disaster. And here's people who are, are showing what it would look like to live differently. Well, Mark, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed talking to you about this. Yeah, Chris, thanks for having me. Mark Sundin, talking with Chris Kyes. This episode was produced by Robbie Carver and me, Peter Vickright. We are the Outside Podcast, which is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back in two weeks. But before we go, we just wanted to drop in another reminder that if you aren't listening to Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, you should be. Reveal takes these deep dives into topics that often aren't in the news, and then does the kind of original reporting that gets copied and reposted all over the internet. Their episodes aren't trying to be super fancy, they just dig up new information about stuff that's important. This week, they follow the trail of your old phones and laptops after you recycle them. And that trail leads to China, which is a problem because there are environmental regulations here and it's illegal to sidestep them by shipping e-waste overseas. Learn more at revealnews.org and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.